Well, welcome to another episode of Access Granted. I'm absolutely delighted to have uh, a good friend and somebody I've known for a couple of years now, uh, the very prominent, successful Jack Romero. Thanks for joining us, Jack. You're welcome, Josh. Really appreciate it. Do you know what? Um, what I'd really like to start with for this interview, for those guys that don't haven't heard of you or heard your story, I'd really like to start with you just explaining where you come from and your story to to growing a business, really. I know um, it's probably one of the most inspiring rags to riches stories I've ever heard, and anyone that's been around you has heard it, I'll always get the same sort of feedback. So, yeah, I mean, I want to pass over to you, really, just to tell us who you are, where you come from, and how you ended up here. Great, yeah, pleasure to be well, here. Um, well, I, the story started up, actually, as a child, uh, living in a tiny little country called Lebanon, and it was a fantastically beautiful country to live in. It was the uh, playground of the wealthy and rich and famous. And uh, it was lovely to grow up. There were no restrictions in the country whatsoever about what you look like, what you eat, what you drink, or whatever. So um, one day I was actually sitting in the garden, and my mum, bless her soul, she was sitting there preparing our lunches. You know, our lunches take hours to prepare and two minutes to eat. Anyway, I heard noise up in the sky, and I dropped everything I was doing, and I looked up. I was probably around five or six years old, and I look up into the sky, and I see this massive metal object just wasn't past. I did not know what was that. I was dumbfounded. So as any child does, I rushed back to the kitchen to tell my mum, hey, mum, listen, and you remember, she has actually a very, very big knife sitting there chopping you know, pulling on a dress, Mom, I saw this huge, massive thing in the sky. Wow, it's incredible. It was blue, green, yellow, whatever. And I rush back to the garden, and then I look up again, and I hear and the sounds and another aircraft passing, and I go, wow, it's amazing. Of course, I have to tell my mother. I rush back in. Mom, you won't believe it. It was low. It was fantastic. It has tires and wheels, and it was flashing lights. If you let me go up to the fifth floor, I can go up and actually can touch it. It's beautiful. And then after a few attempts, my mom got so tired, and we had these sort of French doors. She closed them, and because I was so besotted what I've seen, I didn't actually realize that she closed the door. So as I've seen one aircraft pass by, I'm rushing back to tell her. I hit the glass, I fall on the floor, my mom looks at me and smiles, and I'm standing outside, jumping around, still trying to describe what I've seen. At this point, did you know it was an aircraft that no, you'd seen? No, I didn't know it was an, uh, no, I didn't know it was an aircraft. Um, but then I decided to go and ask the dictionary in the house. That was my father. He seems to know everything, poor man. And um, so I asked him, what is this? He said, that's an aeroplane. And I asked what it does. It goes from A to B, takes people to different countries. And this man has never been in an aeroplane in his life, by the way, never traveled. So anyway, I asked him, where does it go to? He said, an airport. I said, brilliant, airport, fantastic. I will go there to have a look. So every Sunday, he usually takes us to a church and sit down and behave ourselves for two hours. And then as a reward for being nice, he actually asked where you'd like to go. And democratically speaking, he asked where the family like to go. And most of them want to go to the seaside or the mountains. I asked, can I go to the airport? He said, no. So I've asked repeatedly, nicely. It didn't work. So I thought to myself, there must be a way. I'm desperate to go to the airport on a Sunday. So my first lesson in life, and sadly, it was bribery. I knew that people want something, and if they can't have it, if you provide it to them at a nice price, they will do it. That's a Lebanese trick. So I thought, okay, I'll try it with my father. So I sat there and started my first lesson in life, observe, learn, and guess what it is. So observing it, I realized he liked massages. Yeah. And whenever he asked my poor mother, she refused. I said, that's it. 
So I went and offered him a deal. I'll give you a massage for as long as you like. You take me to the airport on Sunday. It worked. The Sunday I was at the airport for the first time, and it was like you take a child and you say, there's a 3D movie in front of you. It's yours. I sat there at the balcony watching airplanes. It was heaven. And at that moment, I knew I will grow up and work in an airport environment or as a pilot or flying these machines. I was beso- I knew it then. And how long was this from the first time you saw an aeroplane to then, you know, massaging your dad so he take you to the airport to you actually knowing that you wanted to spend like your career effectively or build a career in the industry? Yes. How long from that period of first seeing one to when you kind of knew that you wanted to have a career in aviation? Days only. Right. Okay. Wow. I knew there. It's like for me, it was like falling in love. You're not looking for it. You're not having any specific requirements. It just happened. And that's exactly the same. The minute I walked into the airport arrivals hall, you know, I could close my eyes and hear the noise, the smell of the kerosene, people, and I look at them, some are happy, it's sad. And then by the time I arrived to the balcony to have a look, and in those days, you know, it was quite safe, so all the aircraft parked right underneath, and you could see everything. My heart was leaping of joy like never before. And I knew there and then, I want to come back here again and again and again and again. But I knew my father would never do that. But I knew I wanted to be in this environment when I grow up, there. But of course, after a few days, you start thinking about it and you speak to your parents and parents say, no, 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 you need to be a doctor, a lawyer, um, you know, forget about this. (laughs) So, okay. Um, Anyway, so I knew a few days later it will happen. My dad, of course, wouldn't take me to the airport, so I used to skip ho- uh, school and I used to hitchhike to the airport during school hours, sit and watch aeroplanes, and when I run out of money and need something to eat, I used to go down to the arrivals hall, help all the blonde and blue eyes arriving, because I know they have money, yeah. to carry their suitcases back to the car. They tip me, I take the money, go and buy some food. This and is Beirut Airport? Beirut Airport, yes. So I lived a practically a double life uh, all that time. I even bribed the teachers in my school not to send this dreaded letter to my parents that, by the way, we haven't seen your kid for the past month or so. So it worked. So fantastic <laughs> I mean, lesson. As a, yeah, as a, as a young child, you did a lot of bribing. <laughs> well, <laughs> was your was dad with massages or <laughs> school teachers? Well, it's part of life. <laughs> <laughs> Why did I it at the time? It was yeah. <laughs> um, and then, unfortunately, one day, uh, you know, the civil war started. Uh, everything collapsed. Um, being a part of a minority in the country meant that we either fight or we don't fight. And, but for me, there was no question about fighting because I loved everybody. We intermingled with everyone else. There was what happened all of a sudden. You started hating one another because of your religion or so. And uh, so my father, bless him, he used to be the main provider to the family. So if you wanted to buy bread, you don't go to the supermarket. You go to a bakery mm-hmm. and then you queue for I don't know, a mile before you get in. In the meantime, bombs are falling and people die and they just move the dead bodies away and you carry on staying in the queue. Because How if old you were you at this point? I was still a kid. I, if, I don't know. Um, uh, 14, something like this. That's uh, quite a traumatic thing to live through, right? Like in your, in your country and going through a civil war. And yes, but really what shocked me most is when my best friend put a, an AK-47 in my head and you know, start calling me and my religion, you know, uh, all sorts of bad names. And I couldn't understand how could you turn yesterday, we were playing football together, today you have a weapon on my head, 
just because I'm a different religion than you. And next to us, there was uh, a huge uh, uh, Palestinian camp. So there was a lot of arms around and a lot of people running around with guns, doing whatever they want to do. And we were terribly scared. And that was the, the, the moment where I thought, really, life has changed, childhood have died. And then you see, start seeing these horrific scenes when they abduct people. And then you see what happened in front of you, and it's not something that you will forget lightly. It makes you very angry and sad at the same time, but there's nothing you can do as, as a person. You know, there are warlords everywhere, and they rule the country, period. So anyway, I, watching my father uh, going out to get us food, I used to sit and worry for hours, waiting, mesmerized by the window, to get sight of him arriving, so to think, brilliant, he's alive today. So I could rest for a few hours until he has to go out again. Seeing all this, my brother, unfortunately, my next brother, Anthony, he contracted polio at the age of three, dropped, couldn't walk anymore. My parents were financially strapped completely. They spent all their savings, including their wedding rings, to treat him at the hospital and with medication. It's part of the time when if you don't have money, you do not get treated. You could literally die at the entrance of the hospital if you don't have a credit card or can pay. So they had to spend all their money and my fa to pay for my brother's um, medications and treatment. And uh, my father had to work day and night in two separate jobs just to pay the bills and keep us afloat. So as a child watching this, it really hurt me so much. And th the, the fear of losing my father was so predominant in me that I've decided to do something about it. So I've joined the right-wing Christian militias who were in our area. Um, was that an easy decision for you to make at the time? No, no, because it meant you know, being drafted as a child soldier means you have to go and you have to carry guns and you have to do whatever they order you to do. Um, but for me, it was more like to help my family stay alive. For example, if my brother wanted a treatment at the hospital, I could drive in a jeep with other kids with machine guns and take my brother and I go and put a gun at the uh, surgeon's head and say, fix him. And he will, he will fix him and no charge. If I want to go and get bread for the family, I go within a jeep with my colleagues and I will put a gun at the uh, baker's head and I say, I want that much bread, no problem. Nobody want to mess around with kids and machine guns. No, right. So we don't have to queue. I wasn't out there to cause trouble. No, I just more wanted of a was it more of a survival? Exactly. Survival more of instinct. Yes. You know, you want to take care of your family. Absolutely. And actually the one choice that was open to you was joining the, yes. you know, the militia and, yes. Yes. and being a part of that. Absolutely. And how long were you in, the, you know, in that? Until I left to England until I was 17. Right, okay. Um, that was quite horrible. And uh, anyway, in between we had peace treaties and peace agreements. The war stopped. Everybody went back to their normal life. One of the hardest moments for me was uh, when I go back, when I went back to school, and then all of a sudden you see the empty desks, and they're all my friends who actually died during the war, and there's only a few of us. So you had a classroom of about 30, 35 students, and all of a sudden you have 15, and you know they died. They're not skipping school. No. So that was the other hard bit, and that really s made me sit down and think when there was a bit of peace. What am I going to do with life? If anything happened to me, my parents would be devastated uh, because they've lost their firstborn child six months after birth. Then I came, and then my next brother has polio. So they really led a very, very difficult and challenging life. And if they ha lose me, I don't know what will happen to them. So this fear, 
was constant in my mind. And then one day, sitting looking at the sunset, um, and Beirut International Airport is on the left side of the sunset of Beirut, I saw an aircraft coming to land. And immediately upon seeing the aircraft, this passion was reignited. And at that moment, I knew I had to leave. I must get out of the country and must make my dream come true. So I drew up a plan of how I'm going to get my passport, how am I going to get the visa to travel, uh, how am I going to secure some money, and how am I going to tell my dad that I'm leaving. And this was the hardest bit. Yeah. So I worked day and night in, in all sorts of places to make money. I made enough money to buy my ticket and some pocket money. I don't know how I managed to get a visa to come to England, but I, I did it. Um, and then I've decided to leave. On I never told my parents I was leaving. I drew a plan. My plan was simple for life. I will travel to England. I will go to study. I'll become a pilot, airline pilot. That was my aim now. I come back to Lebanon. The war would have stopped. I will work for the national airline. I get married. I have a dozen kids. Uh, they will go out and get married, and then I die. That's it. Right, okay. Period. But pilots make a lot of money. So you can support the family, no problem. So simple plan. Okay. Why England? Because England had the best education reputation on earth. If you want to study and get a fantastic degree, you go to England, period. Or it was a Sorbonne in France, whatever. But England was the choice. Okay. So the night before I was meant to travel to England, I didn't tell the family, by the way, I was leaving. Only at dinner time the night before my flight. Right, okay. So you booked your flight to England, you've got your money, you know you're going. I got the visa. No one knows. No one You knew. go to the dinner with your family the night before. That's right. And that's when you tell them you're off tomorrow yes. morning. Yes, uh, at dinner I was, I was shaking, I was nervous, I was sweating because I had to break the news to them. So I said, by the way, tomorrow I'm going to London. My mother said, yeah, 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 yeah. don't forget your vegetables. They're healthy. <laughs> Get the courage again. By the way, I'm leaving to London tomorrow. My dad, come on, eat your meat. It's very expensive. I am really going to London tomorrow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's carry on eating. So I took my ticket, plane ticket. I put it on the table. Now, these people have never seen a plane ticket. My father, out of curiosity, looked at it and said, what's that? I said, that's my flight ticket to go to London. Who's going to London? I said, me. He picked up the document, looked at it, and he saw Romero, Beirut, London, depart. And he says, and he stopped eating. His color changed. He said, what the hell is that? I said, that's my plane ticket. He said, what do you do with this? I said, I go to the airport tomorrow, and then I sit on a plane, and I go to London. And he said, hang on, hang on. You are going to London tomorrow. I said, yeah, to do what? He said, hey, Dad, I'm glad you asked. I'm going to be a pilot, and I'm going to come back rich. I'm going to look after you and end poverty and look after you until life is over. And then he blew up. You idiot. You stupid. You whatever. What's wrong with you? And he never spoke Spanish before, but on this occasion, he was you know, fabulous, because he's originally Spanish. So he started up cursing in every known language. You idiot. I said, what's wrong with you? How much money have you got? How much money have you got? I said, I've got about 90 pounds in my pocket. He said, brilliant. So you're going to go to England. You want to learn to become a pilot with 90 pounds and live there and come back. I said, yeah, no, Dad, please. I'm not <laughs> stupid. I will work and pay for my studies. Oh, yes, of course. And the British are going to say, hello, Mr. Romero, come in, no problem. Here's a house, you can stay. There's a car if you want. <laughs> you, you can study. He was cursing and swearing. Had any of those things crossed your mind? No, 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 no. Because often when I, I don't think of the event at a time, because when you start thinking too much, 
you lose track of what you need and what you want. And I didn't need that. I knew it was going to be tough, but I didn't want to imagine how tough. I said, I will deal with it there and then. The neighbors came down, and I thought, brilliant, neighbors will help me. And by the time the, my father explained, they too started, you stupid, you idiot, look at your mother, she's going to have a heart attack. You go. Then I said, whoa, stop, stop. There are two choices. We had the Syrian army in the country, and everyone was expecting a major breakout in the war between us and them. And I said to them, when this happens, I'm called up to the militias. I will not live, I will die, because there's 40,000 of them, and they're heavily armed. The other choice is I can go to London tomorrow, I can try my luck, at least nobody's going to shoot me there, to make my dream come true, and hopefully by the time I finish, the war has stopped, and I can come back and work and look after you. They said, okay, you know, they, they had no choice, either die in a month or go to London. So yeah, I arrived, took the plane. When I went to the airport, I was in heaven. The minute I walked into the departure lounge was another life. Went to the aircraft, my heart was beating as if I'm going to meet the love of my life. Went up the stairs, I touched it, made sure it's real. I looked back at the airport, where I, at the veranda or the balcony where I used to watch aeroplanes. And then I looked up to the sky and I said, I swear by heaven, I will never return and see this sight until I have succeeded. And Otherwise, I am not coming back. And that for you was becoming a pilot? Yes. Your Ryan Cape? Yes. That was it. Nice. Went to the aircraft, no problem. I was glued to the window the whole five hours, didn't even eat. I was so excited, arrived to London, managed to get my way through out of immigration, went to the arrivals hall, put my suitcases down, where do I go from here? I had nobody. Nobody was there. I had no friends, no relations. I've never traveled in my life before. So that was an arrival hall at Heathrow Airport. During the war, many incidents have happened in my life made me think, if you really want something in life so badly. At that time, you know, people thought about religion and God and everything. He will tell you, he will give you the answer, or life will give you the answer if you take a step back, listen, and just wait and life will show you the answer. And I'm a great believer in that. So I put my suitcases, I watch people that I'm not there, and I knew life will show me the answer. What to do next? I waited, 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 and then all of a sudden I see a telephone box. Uh, something hit me, more like curiosity. And I knew this feeling, this curiosity feeling is the way life speaks to you. So I went to the phone box, and as I looked at it, I saw that it had books. So I opened the books and I saw names, addresses, and telephone numbers, and immediately came to my mind, what if I find a Lebanese family surname? I called them up, I say, I just arrived, I have no money, can I stay in your house? Bingo, fine. Right, so I started to look through the surnames, found a Lebanese surname. Now, how the heck do you use a phone? I never used a phone in my life. So I see these two guys with the long, big hats. I thought they were clowns employed by the airport for entertainment. Turned out to be policemen. Yeah. And then through sign language and a bit of French or whatever, you know, they helped me use the phone. So I called up, this guy answered the phone, and I said, hello, my name is so-and-so, and I spoke in Arabic. And uh, he said, yeah, hello, how are you? Blah, blah, blah. I said, 17, just arrived, no money, no place to stay, can I come and stay at your house? Yeah, yeah, no problem, the address is there in Queensgate Terrace, in Gloucester Road. Get a taxi and come, you can stay here. This is it, brilliant. Taxi, cost too much money. There must be another way. Can I walk? Is it too far? I asked a few people. They said, you take a train. So I managed to take a train. 
I walked and I arrived, and imagine the scene. A big townhouse, huge door. There I am with suitcases, go up the stairs, knock at the door, door opened up. Reminds me uh, of these horror movies, you know, with this large door and somebody comes up. And this guy looked at me and honestly imagined the scene. He looked at me, looked down, his jaw dropped, and he said, wait, 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 were you the guy on the phone? I said, yes. He said, is it really true? You don't have money, you just arrived, you have nowhere to stay. I said, yes, but you can't stay here. I said, well, what do you mean you can't stay here? I came all the way from the airport. You said I can stay. He said, no, 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 there's a misunderstanding. He said, what misunderstanding? He said, I thought one of my friends are cracking, playing a joke with me, and I've gone along with it, and I'm expecting a friend to come along with other friends. Not you. So I played off this, but I haven't got anywhere to go. I'm stuck. <laughs> How much money have you got? I said, 90 pounds. 90 pounds? You just arrived from Lebanon with 90 pounds? I said, yes. Anyway, he, he must have felt sorry for me. The CEO has his driver, personal driver, has a little mini kitchenette in, a, in the basement. So I said, you can stay there. Don't come up, stay there for a day just to get your feet and then you leave. He said, no problem. Cut a very long story short, they, these guys were a property development company. They purchased an old YMCA in Endel Street in Covent Garden. It was all totally broken up, no electricity, no gas, no water. And they said to me afterwards, look, you can go and stay there for free till you sort yourself out. They didn't have the heart to throw me out. So yeah, I went to Endel Street, uh, went inside this old uh, YMCA, no electricity, no gas, no nothing. Um, I was happy as anything. Got myself a room, and my luck, the following day, you got the punks and skinheads broke in. Well, Apparently there's a law in the country where it says squatters are allowed to go and occupy empty buildings. And I was practically the only brown face amongst all these crowds. <laughs> That's another story. Anyway, so I was there. I managed to stay alive amongst them. Yeah. And they became one of the best friends I have ever had. They were amazing people. They helped me get a job in restaurants. They helped me, it told me what to do. You queue at a bus stop. You don't barge in, you know, and so on and so forth. So I started to put my plan into action. I got my work, I saved up money, and I started my flying lessons. But before that, I started taking English lessons, so to learn the language. And I'm a very, very fast learner. And I, you know, even with work, every few minutes I take a book and try and read to learn the language. So it didn't take me long to learn, to communicate. So I started learning, uh, started flying lessons, and uh, it was fantastic. So How were you funding the, the flying lessons? Okay, I worked in restaurants day and night, seven days a week. Okay. And at the end of the week, when I get paid, I go to the flying school, and I do a flying hour and a one lesson on the ground, and then I'm broke for the following week. And being broke, that means I couldn't pay the rent, I couldn't pay electricity because I had a meter or gas or so. So often I got thrown out of the house because I couldn't pay the rent anymore and ended up living on the streets or in the parks. I was officially homeless. And this was one of the hardest times for me because living uh, outside, living on, on benches, was horrible. You know, time doesn't, it drags on. Every minute feels like an hour. There is no hope. There are no friends to talk to. There is no family you can talk to. Just pure loneliness. And often I sit down and think, Am I doing the right thing? Is it the right thing to do? How long have you been in London at this point? A few months. Right, okay. A few months. And uh, by that time, um, I ended up at Richmond, and I was sleeping primarily in Richmond Park on the benches. 
and often when it was not allowed, I used to go down by the river and sleep there. And when it rains, or quite windy, I used to go up the hill to the phone box, and I used to stay there, pretend I was making a phone call just to shelter from the rain and the wind. And when I see a police car, I leave, and then I come back again. Um, and then I go to work in the restaurants, but I couldn't sleep in the restaurants because of insurance. It was not allowed. So I was practically homeless on the street for over a year. Um, just over a year, and then finally I managed to get my pilot's license, my private pilot's license. Now all I have to do after that is to fly 650 hours and pass through a test, and I get my commercial license, and that's it, it's done, then I can go back. So, no problem, how do you get 650 hours? I thought, well, there's a will, there's a way, and by God, I will find a way. I will get those 650 hours. I tried everything, from trying to become a, an instructor to fly to the States, and all cost money, and I didn't have money. So I thought, there will be a way. And one day, I found it. I saw an advert in a magazine, some company, aerial photography company, looking for a pilot who wants to build hours. They don't pay money, but they pay you with flying hours. And they pay for the petrol and everything. So I said, brilliant. But photography, I've never done photography in my life. But never mind, I'll find my way. So I spent a lot of time in WH Smith looking at these cameras and trying to learn their names and so on. So I went for the interview, pretended I was a fantastic photographer, bluffed my way through, and I got the job eventually. So I am um, there. That's real sales, <laughs> isn't it? Like you not knowing anything about like cameras and stuff like that. And yeah. Selling to someone that you can do even a full photography yeah, yeah. job. The only time I touched the, the cameras when I went to the shop and I pretended I want to buy one so I can hold it. And I asked them, well, how do you open this? How do you? So this is how I prepared myself for the interview. So when I went to the interview, they said no because they had a pile of applicants. And I left really despondent, like, how, no, 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 this is for me. Yeah, Life you thought that was this. it, right? That yeah, was yeah, yeah. To your, um, I thought, come on, there must be a way. Ah, and it came. And I went back, asked them for a five-minute meeting. It was in their house. I took, went with a big bunch of roses, gave it to the wife of the uh, owner. I didn't realize that roses means I love you. <laughs> so there was, yeah, give it up to roses. Said, That's a smart move, though, isn't yeah. it? Like, you know, you're going to go to the family uh, pretended, home. We pretended to say to them, look, in Lebanon, we have this habit. If you visit somebody's home, it's not polite to go empty-handed. And so I went and I said, this is for you, madam. I'm terribly sorry. I left without even saying thank you for the tea and biscuits. That was so kind of you. Thank you very much indeed for that. That's all I wanted to do. And they uh, said, okay, thanks. And then she came back to me. Oh, thank you so much. Sorry, what's your name? Jack. What are you here for? I said, for the pilot job. But your, your husband said no, but somebody else got it. But never mind. I've done my duty. Thank you so much. By the time I left home, they called back and said, you've got the job. <laughs> nice. So next thing, I'm actually in the airplane with a Pentax camera and a huge zoom. And the box with so many films, which I've never seen in my life, because that type of Pentax I haven't seen in the shops. It's a professional camera. And I sat in the aircraft, pilot started flying, and then he says, right, get ready. And the idea is that you open the window, you get the camera ready, you lean out of the window, he banked the plane, and we start filming properties, expensive, wealthy properties and uh, golf courses and so on. And the company takes the pictures, frame them, and they sell them. Right, okay. So that was it. So I'm in the airplane, didn't even know how to open it. And the pilot is waiting. I'm here, overhead the area, what do I do? Can I tell you a secret? said, what? I'm not a photographer. I don't know how to open the bloody thing to make it work. <laughs> so we flew down, and he showed me how it works. And he says, OK, give it a try. 
Again, being a fast learner and eager to learn because I had no other option, I picked it up so fast that within a year, within a season, I was their top photographer. The highest amounts of film, the best quality. Salespeople didn't have any problem in selling my pictures. They were very, very good. So for your next few years, that was brilliant. So I got my 650 hours and that's it. I've done all the tests. I just needed to go to a few further tests and that's it, license is issued. I'm flying doing my aerophotography overhead, Canary Wharf in London. Uh, the air traffic at Heathrow Airport says, um, stop what you're doing, look to your right, what do you see? I see a police helicopter, they know me, I know them. And he said, they're gonna escort you to Elstree Airfield, can you go there? So I flew to Elstree Airfield, police were waiting. They confiscated the camera, the films, took me to the station, and they said, you've broken the rules, and so on. Civil Aviation Authority took me to court, and they revoked my pilot's license. They did not suspend. They revoked it, and they said, you will never fly again. That's it. That must have been crushing. The crushing is an understatement. For me, it, that was it. I realized there and then that I will never see my family again, because I will not go back. I'm not go by going back to restaurants. I don't have any other education. Um, I don't want to study anything else. I just want to fly airplanes. So I got out of the court. I crossed the streets without even looking, and I wish the bus would hit me and end it. That would have been a lot easier option. So a few months passed. Why did they revoke it? Because I broke every rule in the book. Right. And uh, there was apparently a robbery, an armed robbery taking place below me somewhere. And they thought we are the culprits up there, you know, with the cameras and flying low and uh, a whole sorts of issues. But the, 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 the point as far as civil aviation authority is concerned that we broke every uh, flying rule, flying dangerously quite low, overhead built up areas and uh, all sorts. So that was it. Pilot license revoked, you will never fly again. That's it. I pleaded with them. They said, no, finished, finished. You will never fly here in this country again. You will never get a British license. Okay, so after a few months, feeling depressed, lonely, sad, um, really, I started questioning my own sanity, whether my dream was real, whether it's right. My faith in God finished at that moment. Until then, I believed. Until this moment is finished. I cursed heaven like there's no tomorrow. I believe there is nothing. And there, this is it. So out of solace to, you know, to, 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 um, to put myself up, I used to go to the airport, to Heathrow, Terminal 3, Car Park 3, sit down and watch aeroplanes. And this was tormenting for me because I could see the dream I've had, which I could never have anymore. But for some reason, I felt comforted being there than somewhere else. Money that I made up, almost drying up because I didn't want to work. I, I really neglected myself completely. And then after a few months like this, I, I was at Heathrow Airport. I was just about being thrown out of the house again because lack of paying my rent. Uh, back on the streets again, I look up and I see Middle East Airline, the Lebanese National Airline, arrive from Beirut, park right in front of me. Passengers disembark, and I broke down and I wept because to me, it brought back the memory of my family. I missed them so much. I I really missed them a lot. Uh, and I saw this airplane four hours ago. It was there, and now it's here. So brought it home that I will never see them again. And I knew I wouldn't do it. So feeling homesick, I missed my family a lot. I was so angry. I looked up to heaven and I cursed again. You know, for what, I, what did I do to you to deserve this? What was I doing that it was not right? Why did you take it from me just at the final step? I finished. 
I've done the impossible, and then you snap it out of me. Why do you do this? And then something happened. Something snapped in me, and all of a sudden a brilliant idea came to my head. I looked up, I looked at the aeroplane, and I said, I looked up to heaven, I said, well, you can keep your sodding license, I don't want to be a pilot anymore, and I swear, I don't want to fly aeroplanes uh, anymore as a pilot, I want to build my own airline, and I'm going to fly it from Heathrow to London with my own airline and my own aircraft, and if you dare to stop me, you better kill me, because I will not stop until I get there. And uh, that was it, decision taken. By the time I left Terminal 3, I wasn't walking. I couldn't feel my legs anymore. I was floating. I went to the bus station, got the 140 bus back to Harrow, where I lived. And by that time, I already drew in my mind a strategy of how I'm going to start an airline. Even though I never worked for them, I thought, never mind, I would learn. So next day, I carried my bags, pens, and paper, because at that time, there were no laptops or anything like this. And I went to the Civil Aviation Authority's library, and I buried myself there from opening time to closing time, trying to read and understand how airline business work. I haven't got much patience in sit and read books, so another idea came to my mind. I would call up British Airways and say, hello, my name is Jack Romero. I'm a student at the university. I'm doing air transport. Could you ask a few questions, please? And I say, like, yeah, what would you like? How do you buy airplanes? And as they speak, I write it down. And they were quite helpful to students. How do you make money? Next day, I would call another airline, BMI, British Midland at the time. Again, I'm a student doing research. Um, how do you maintain your aircraft? How do you, you know, and I had this canvas. In the middle, there's an airline, and I started to fill up the pieces. What do you need to start an airline? How does the airline business work? And through this, I created a strategy of how to get to that stage with all this relevant information. And I took the best parts that are most difficult, and I aimed at those, because without these parts, an airline project will not work. For example, I needed to raise six million pounds. I needed to get the airline license. I needed to get the airport landing slots at Heathrow Airport. So these were the key elements. Okay, and, the most, and the most difficult to, the to slots. achieve. Yeah. yeah, absolutely, because I didn't realize then, um, I thought it was a piece of cake you know, to get them. <laughs> yeah. But these are the important bits. Yeah. Once you have them, then everything else, like management, aircraft, offices, uh, crew and whatever is easier once you have the money and the license and everything else. So I thought, okay, this is it. Now I, start, I need the airline license. How do you get an airline license? Civil Aviation Authority. So I applied after forming a shell company and using a, uh, uh, an imaginary office address. Um, yes, yeah, so I, they sent me all the documents and I managed to find somebody to help me through fibbing my way through because at that time there was only typewriters. So you put the application forms in the typewriter and you try and type. And I didn't have knowledge how to fill it in, but I was so determined to finish it, I found someone in Biggin Hill Airport. He, had, he ran his own executive charter company. I called him up. I explained my dream. He laughed his head off, fell off his chair. And then he said to me, do you drink? I said, no, but I do if you want. So we had a bottle of wine. I was drunk. And then he says to me afterwards, okay, I heard your story. I'm happy to help you. So through his help, I managed to get the air operator certificate, which was a license to operate aircrafts commercially. And then I applied for the air transport license and had to convince the authority that I am a proper airline. I have the aircrafts, I have the crew, I have the pilots, I have the office, I have the engineering contracts and so on. And I fibbed through all this. 
Everything was imaginary. I didn't own a single aeroplane, didn't have a single pilot. I just used other people's. Was no one like checking up on this information? Not yet, but they sent somebody to check. And when he checked, I could write a book on how I managed this. Talk about 007. I've done the same. Yeah. <laughs> I managed to fix it with an aircraft and the pilots and an office when the inspector came. How did you do that? Uh, we need another hour. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but believe me, it's done. Yeah. And then we've done the test flight and I've got the license. So now I have the airline license, the same as British Airways, and my room hanging on the wall. And my room where I lived, there was no furniture, nothing, because bailiffs have taken it, couldn't afford to pay. But there was a mattress on the floor, that's where I slept, and few items in the kitchen where I can make something to eat. But I had the same airline license as British Airways on my wall. Next, I needed the designation as the official national carrier of Great Britain to the Lebanon, because you had to do that. Again, I managed to get that through other means, um, which again would take uh, a book on its own just to write, but I managed to get their support. And then I needed to get the airport slots at Heathrow. So I made the application as London Air Tours, that was the name of the airline at the beginning. And the, uh, I was really shocked to say, no, we don't have any. So I went to their office and said, what do you mean you don't have any? They said, Mr. Romero, there are no free slots at Heathrow Airport. There are no slots. I said, but look, I'm starting an airline. I've got a license. They said, it doesn't matter. There are no slots. And a slot is like a takeoff and yes. land, is a take uh, yes. and landing. Is that right? It, exactly. A, a landing slot is a time of arrival and a time of departure. That's one slot. Right. Okay. So every airline has to apply in advance for their schedule. And they're not cheap, are they? No, I, he said to me after feeling sorry for me, the only way you can get them is to buy them. I thought, yeah, piece of cake, how much will they cost? So he said about six to 12 million pounds. I said, sorry, six to what? To six to 12 million pounds. I said, I only need six million to start the airline. And I thought, okay, so I have to raise another six million pounds. said, no, 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 no. Six to 12 million pounds each. So if you want to fly seven days a week schedule, you need seven slots. You multiply seven by six or 12 million pounds. That's what airlines are charging for that. So I fell that's off. like up to 84 million. Yes, I almost fell off my chair and he said, there is no way under heaven you will get these slots for free. Now, I'm not the sort of person that take no for an answer. I said, don't worry. I bribed my own father. I will find a yeah. way to, to... I think we've got that so far. From yeah, you, exactly. <laughs> so I thought I will work with them, but I didn't realize that you can't bribe the British. You know, you can't do this to these people, otherwise they put you in prison. So I thought, hmm, my ace card is gone, so what do I do now? So I started phoning them every day. I thought if I become a nuisance, they would try and get rid of me and say this. I said, no way, you can try what you like. There are no slots. I thought, never mind, where there's a will, there's a way, and I will find a way to get these slots, one way or the other. I didn't come that far just to be broken and fail because of these thingies they call slots. So anyway, after a few years passed, about two years I think or so passed, trying everything, I saw that the uh, European Commission, was the EEC at the time, they came up with a new law, or, or they enforced a law that will encourage competition. So if there are uh, monopoly-operated markets or monopoly-operated routes in air transport, the government has to enforce competition. They have to allow competition. And I thought, this is it. There's only one airline flying on that route, and that foreign company, Lebanese Airline, so they become foreign to me, operate on that route. British Airways is not willing to fly there. Now, I need to know, BA, British Airways, is going to fly, because if they do want to fly to Beirut, my plan is over, because I could use this law 
to my favor to try and win the slots. So I went to meet Sir Colin Marshall at the time, who was head of British Airways, uh, Margaret Thatcher's favorite. And I sat there to meet him, and I offered him a deal that he can't refuse, and he refused it. Uh, give me a franchise with British Airways, and we become partners, and I fly to Beirut on your behalf, and the British Airways logo. He laughed his head off and said, go and operate, and after one year, if you're still there, we can talk again. So, but I got from him that BA is not interested to okay, fly so back. And that led you on to then know that the fact that they had the existing company had a monopoly on the route. Yes, right? yes. And I've used that ESO law and I really hit them hard daily, daily, daily. And one day I got a call, said, come, the coordinator at Heathrow would like to talk to you. I went to his office and he says, right, uh, cut a long story short here, have a look. He gave me, at that time we had telexes as means of communication, telexes, and we had faxes, and we had whatever. So I had a telex that says, you know, KJ001, day one, London Heathrow to Beirut. And then I said, yeah, that's my schedule. That's my application. Well, what about, well, what's it, what is it? He says, uh, these are your slots at Heathrow. I said, well, I know, that's my application. Yes, he said, yeah, but they're yours. So hang on, what do you mean they're yours? They said, they are yours. I said, what do you mean, you mean I've got them? He said, absolutely, you have. So he turned this massive compact computer screen and he showed me, you're on the system, good luck, you have your slots. They just gifted them to you? They had to because of the good. law. Because of the and law. And how much were they worth they at the could time? At the six to 12? Six to 12 million each and I had seven of them. Wow. So I went to my uh, home and I put it right next to the British Airways license. So I've got 70 million pounds worth of assets. Yeah. <laughs> the license as British that Airways. That didn't cost you anything. Yeah, that didn't cost me anything, but I was sleeping on the floor. Now all I need is six million pounds and I'm off. No problem, piece of cake. So I managed to put a management team together. I promised them jobs. If they helped me put a business plan together, I had no idea how to write a business plan. So they did it and I went searching for finance. I call up companies like 3i and other venture capitalists and I go to my meeting with them. They are excited by it and then they say no. So after the 50th refusal, I stopped counting. But I never lost hope. I said, no, 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 no. Life didn't send me all this way here to lose because of measly six million pounds. This is not it. No, no, no. I have to meet the right person. Somebody out there will believe in my story and will fund it. A few years passed. I was back on the streets almost again time you know on and off on and off but I never 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 lost hope I knew I could feel it in me the fire is burning that I will find that person and I did I found a business person at the world travel market in Earl's Court at the last day the last half an hour before they closed the show I put my business plan in front of him I like I was like a photographer a photographer never leaves premises without a camera just in case the perfect shot arrived I never lost I never left my home without a business plan because you never know when you meet the right person so when he looked at my business plan copies of the slots copies of the licenses and then he said to me uh, are you an airline I said well yes do you have airplanes no but I will have them do you have other investors yes how much money have you got I said I've got two million I fibbed it I thought yeah. if I say two million so four million is not that bad and uh, he says to me, son, tell me the truth. What do you need? I said, I need the whole six million and the airline will start. He said, I'll put it. Uh, true to his word, I went to- That must have found incredible though, after the journey that you've had to this point and you've, like, you've, got, your lot, you've got your slots, you, um, you know, you've gone through all of the adversity that you've been through and then someone's like, okay, here you go. So I'll tell you money. something else. 
I had, I think, one or two months left before the Civil Aviation Authority would have revoked my airline license. Oh, really? Because it was a few years, and they said, look, Mr. Romero, between us, we know you don't have an airline, we know you don't have airplanes, we know you're looking for money, but out of respect to your efforts and your determination, we allowed the license to go through because you're not going to cause any harm or anything that would jeopardize safety. But we have to cut it off, and you've got only a couple of months. If you're not ready, it's finished. We have to revoke it, and you have to start all over again. So this man was heaven sent. So I had to meet him the following day in, uh, in, in Park Lane to convince his team of advisors that the business is sound and will make money, and I did it. And true to his word, he put the money, six million pounds was in the account a couple of months later after we finished the paperwork. He flew me in his aircraft, we went to Toulouse, uh, France, and he ordered a brand new Airbus A320 aircraft, cost him $65 million, because he wanted a brand new aeroplane. We flew back, a few months later the aircraft arrived uh, to Heathrow Airport, and went to British Airways hangar to be prepared for service and painted and all the seats put in. And my dream became reality. My parents did not know anything about what I was doing. Didn't know anything. They thought I'm working and I'm just paying for my education and that was it. Had you spoke to them at all during this Once period? or twice a year. Okay. That was it, just to say I'm still alive. And then on the inaugural flight, on the flight itself, they were all very, very high-ranking officials in politics, House of Lords, House of Commons, actors, actresses, singers, you name it there, and then there was me. Yeah. I went into the cockpit, flying back to, you know, with the pilots to Beirut. My heart was beating, and it was really big news, because in Beirut at the time, the only way the government could show the civil war has ended is when foreign airlines return. And British Airways didn't want to return, so I was practically brought the British back to the Lebanon because I, I, during the course of setting the airline up, I was angry to hear that the French have gone back, the Dutch have gone back, the Italians have gone back, and they were creaming off all these lucrative contracts, rebuild the country and so on. But the Brits are nowhere to be seen simply because BA is not flying there, so they assumed it's not safe. So I felt proud. I was doing something back to Britain that at least to say thank you flew into Beirut, and I knew my parents would see me on TV because it was big news. We had the red carpet treatment, ministers waiting, army, you know, uh, honor guards or whatever were there. And I, my father never missed the news, ever. So you knew he was going to be watching? Yes. So they saw me on the news. We went and had in one of the top five-star hotels in Beirut our press conference, and I was on the podium with the British ambassador, Lord Hesketh from the UK, amongst others. And then one of the reporters says, your name sounds familiar. I said, yes, my father worked for your newspaper. He's an employee. So they all rushed up, called up my father and said, you won't believe it, your son is here. Did you know that? And my father said, no. So he called me up at the hotel because I didn't want to go the same evening. It was too much for me. And I said, dad, that's the first time I spoke to him in 15 years. I used to speak to my mom though. And I said, I'll be home tomorrow. So I left in a little tiny car, hidden, to avoid the road roadblocks. And I went back to this huge limousine with a driver. The car couldn't even get to where we live. It was too big. And as I came down and I got out of the car, my family were lined up next to the wall. And I looked at them and I froze. I didn't know what to do. I haven't seen them for 15 years. And I looked at my father. He aged 
my mother aged, my brother is tall, and I, I, I really didn't know what to do. I mean, what do you do? Do you run and hug them and say, hi, so I'm back? It was inappropriate. There was highly emotional moment. But what really broke it in me is to see the tears running in my father's cheeks. I never saw him cry, not even in the middle of the war. And that did it. I ran and I hugged them and they hugged me. Tears were flowing. My mother hugging me. My father was almost crushing me. Promise you will never leave again. Promise us you will never leave again. I said, I swear to you, I will never leave you. And then something magical happened while we are hugging and the tears were coming. Only then I knew why I had to endure homelessness and all these problems. It wasn't for me, it was for them. God loves them probably so much, gave them me to give them something back. And I was so proud. And only then a greatest lesson I've learned. To be a successful entrepreneur or businessman, if you, success, if you succeed only economically or financially, you're not success. You have to succeed humanitarianly and financially. Every coin has two sides, and life is the same. That's what I've learned. To be really successful, you have to give back to life as well as make your success financially and business-wise. Was it all worth it? Did you feel like it was all worth it? All absolutely, the hardship that you've gone through? Absolutely. All the pain disappeared then. This is the magic of the moment. You know, I was bitter. I've lost my license. I couldn't fly again. You know, all this happened. Of course, I felt it. But when I hugged my parents, everything melted, disappeared. Only then I knew one of the greatest lessons in life. And I'm very much science-based person in my thinking today and always been since, you know. Um, I always believe what goes round comes round. So if you take, take, take and you never give nothing in return, eventually you'll fail. Loneliness, heartaches, you know, losses. Karma. karma, exactly. And I'm a great believer in that. So this is why I said in order to be successful, you have to, be, you have to succeed as a human being on a humanitarian level and succeed in business. And when you succeed on a humanitarian level, I don't mean just going out and dishing out money for charities. Humanitarian level could be your own brother, could be your own sister, could be your own uncle, could be your own father. You could look after your parents as they age. You could do whatever. That's what I mean. There has to be a human phase to success. And that's the lesson I've learned. I've carried it throughout my life, even till today. So poverty finished, no more poverty for the family, looked after them. And then I went back to London and to recap the story of British Mediterranean Airways, started it up with uh, six million pounds, flying one route, 65 staff. The route was from London Heathrow to Beirut. Um, about two years later, I managed to secure a franchise agreement with British Airways. I convinced them that it would work. And then we grew to from one aircraft to two aircraft operations and over 200 staff. And then about nine years later, we won the Queen's Award for Enterprise. And uh, we've operated by that time, until that time, nine Airbuses, A320 and A321s from Heathrow to over 40 destinations. And we've had six Airbuses on order. And the franchise survived one of the most successful franchise in the network of British Airways. And after this, I took a very, very long holiday to recover. Two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> and then the bug of starting up new businesses came back. So I went to start other, other airlines. So I started other airlines. Some of them took me six months from writing the business plan on a napkin in a coffee shop to getting the aircraft flying in the air. 
And then uh, about 10 years later, I discovered a new passion, which is teaching. So I started, I felt really passionately about giving back to the new leaders. And what better place than academia? So I started passing on my experience and my expertise in teaching, and that grew. So now 50% of my time ended up teaching at universities, research universities like the University of Exeter, Leeds, and in Germany, Munich, and Berlin. And I felt a great satisfaction for giving back something to life, not just taking. And um, I do quite a bit of charitable work. And the other uh, uh, side of the coin on business side, I work as an advisor for companies uh, who are struggling or they need to change course or they're going through uh, mergers and acquisitions or they need uh, non-exec directors on the board, someone just as a sounding board. So I do a mixture of that at the moment. And it keeps me very busy. You must be incredibly proud of what you've achieved in your life, because as a, as a you know as a story of coming from Lebanon, being in you know being in the civil war, being in the militia, moving to the UK with ninety pounds, to the, you know having a dream of being a pilot, to that being broken in front of you, to then being like I'm going to create my own airline, and then just the hardship of building a business, let alone an airline. Um, in that particular industry, and then obviously exiting that successfully is. is what a journey. I mean, you must be incredibly proud of yourself. Yes, I'm very proud uh, of my achievements, but I'm very, very proud of my parents of being there. I'm very proud with all the people that believed in me. I'm very proud with the management team and all the staff that I had that turned British Mediterranean the success it deserved. I'm very proud of them. They were like family. What would be some of the biggest key takeaways from your experience, um, your your life experience, really? Because you often talk about like life will always show you a way out. Yes, um, I still believe it. Yeah, would that be your you know your biggest piece of advice to people? Or? Yes, two of them really. If you want answers, and you're desperate for answers, whether on personal level, professional level, you need to learn how to take a step back, switch off everything you're doing. Open your eyes and ears and wait, because I can guarantee your life will help. People will say God, people will say life. Somebody will show you the way. If you are not ready and waiting to see it, it will pass in front of you and you would have never noticed it. Never noticed it. And this goes to taking decisions. Why do you go to this place, not that place? Why do you travel to that country, not that country? So if you take different decisions and they're the wrong decisions, it's okay, you will never know. But you go on a different path. So how does life show you? You have to be able to take a step back, switch off, open your eyes and ears, and, and life will show you. And the other is never give up. Never, ever, ever, ever give up. There's always a way. There is definitely always a way. And life showed me through different businesses I got involved in, not just aviation, and I've been in hospitality, e-commerce, property, you name it. When everything closed and there is no way out, I found a way out. And that taught me there is always a solution. So these are the best takeaways. Yeah, yeah. that's yeah, cracking. Um, yeah, cracking takeaways. When you talk about like, intu like the first one really sounds to me like really listening to your intuition, right? Like the world's a noisy place these days, especially yes. with technology and, you know, there's you know, a lot of opinions. And yes. obviously, so, you know, that really sounds to me like you talk about your own intuition is yes. better than any sort of, it's the best compass yeah. you could possibly get. Exactly. It starts with a curiosity. Like when I arrived at Heathrow, it's not because I was so I mean, I love fly. that story, by the way. You like turn up at Heathrow and you're like, ah. Uh, Where do I go from here? Yeah. yeah. Okay, I'm going to go to the phone box. I'm going to look for a Lebanese yeah. name. I'm going to give someone a call. Yeah. 
and um, yeah, and then you kind of yeah the journey continues, doesn't yes, it? Exactly, exactly. Yeah, that's great. And what you know, just on a business um, on a business side of stuff, like how do you feel like with COVID the last year or so, the businesses that you're involved mm -hmm. in, and mm -hmm. how do you see the future panning out? Well, I see tremendous opportunities. I've never seen these opportunities before until now. I mean, I've been involved since March 2020 with numerous webinars, seminars, discussion groups to try and identify the new regulations, the new processes. Because for me, the old processes that we've used during, let's say, due diligence uh, on a new project, for example, or investing in projects or taking over or assessing risk and so on, dead. All the econometric modelings we've used, all the analysis we've used, for me, it's finished. Reality has set in that there's a different way of assessing things now. So when you look at a business, if it's risky to invest in or not, the rules have changed, the processes have changed, and we needed to learn what these new processes are. Are they workable or are they not? Are they achievable or are they not? Are they realistic or are they not? And through this, almost uh, since March 2020, learning these processes, I've came to the conclusion that there are immense business opportunities out there. Brexit came, threw everybody out. You have for and against. But I'm always looking at the bright side of life, rings a bell. <laughs> yeah. And I always spot opportunities everywhere. So now we can go and restart this new form of globalization. You know, who says I can't trade with China? Who says I can't trade with... Uh, uh, you know, like Dubai, who says I can't trade with South Africa on a, on a different level. Now I have access to different opportunities. So I see a lot of opportunities out there. So I built up a huge network of connections uh, in the finance world and in, in economics and uh, um, with royal family members, with in, you know, not in the UK, but outside. So now I could see these opportunities that can be realized. All you have to do is apply the new processes. You can easily take a step back and say, oh, you know, life is horrible, life is this, life is bad, look what we've done with Brexit, look what we've done, whatever. We have over two trillion pounds of national debt. You can sit and cry till the cows come home, but nothing's going to move until you move. And like Norman Tevitt says, get on your bike and, you know, get yourself a job. Or I believe in that. You are an optimist, aren't you? You will what else is there? Yeah, I know, right? What else is the there? alternative? We have 80 or 90 years in this life if we're lucky, and then that's it. It's not how much you accumulate, it's what you leave behind, the legacies. And I want to leave a good legacy. I think I'm, I really think you have, Jack. I mean, like, every time I hear your story, <laughs> it always touches me. And um, I really appreciate your time today. And, it's a pleasure um, to be here. What's next for Jack Romero? Uh, just watch this face. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a few projects we'll online, yes. A nice one. Uh, thanks, Jack. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Always a great pleasure to see you. Thank you. Likewise, thank you.